Welcome to The Sit Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of The Sit Down, a crime history podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nadu. As always, we are presented by Barstool Sports. If you're listening to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, welcome in. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave us a review and a comment about what you think of the show. If you're watching on YouTube and you haven't done it yet, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you never miss another sit-down video. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with yet another episode. It's another week, another sit-down, and it's Thanksgiving week. They call this Feast Week in basketball. And got a lot of sports, got a lot of good food, got a little family as well. But before we get to that, we got another show. Thanksgiving Eve's tonight, basically, if you're listening on Wednesday. Uh, We've got a terrific episode today, one of which that I've been asked about many times. I have had more requests for a show on the East Harlem Purple Gang um, than I can remember. And I felt like for me, if I was going to do this show, I had to do it with the right person. And for me, I try to find um, the people that know these groups the best. We did a show recently on uh, Los Zetas, uh cartel. We, we talked to a DEA agent. And I'm also asked a lot about books. And today our guest kills two birds at one stone, if you will. Uh, he's a pro on the topic at hand, and he has written some great books. He's an author who specializes in organized crime. He's written, uh, I actually referred to him in our, our Santo Traficante episode. He's really written extensively on the life of Santo Traficante. He wrote a book called Cigar City Mafia, a complete history of the Tampa Bay underworld. He's written a book called The Silent Don, the criminal underworld of Santo Traficante Jr. And I got to admit, one of the best mob books in the mob genre, Garden State Gangland, The Rise of the Mob in New Jersey. He's covered Tampa. He's covered New Jersey. And recently, I'm going to flash it up on the screen if you're watching, he wrote this terrific book. It's called Hitman, The Mafia, Drugs, and the East Harlem Purple Gang. We're going to get into who they are in just a bit, but let's welcome in our guest today. It is the great Scott Deach. And Scott, I have to say right off the top, I've said to you uh, before we started, there are a lot of great authors in this genre. Obviously, people like Selwyn Rabb, Tony DiStefano. um, I'm sure I'll miss so many. John Davis many years ago. Uh, But you're really, you and Scott Bernstein are kind of the next in line. George Anastasia is still out there. He's a great writer. But you and Scott Bernstein are kind of the, you look outside of New York necessarily a lot of the time. You're looking in New Jersey or Pampa or Detroit. Uh, you're a great author, and I'm glad to have you on the show. We try to surround ourselves with professionals, and uh, you're one of the best, my friend. Well, uh, thank you. It means a lot, and being lumped in with some of those uh, other fantastic authors. And, and, and yeah, Scott uh, Bernstein, a great author, and you mentioned a few. It's, it's a... Um, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of us know each other just because the, the subjects we write about. But no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was I was excited to have you on because, like I said, I've been asked so many times about the Purple Gang because Purple Gang are interesting because they are very similar to. I talk on our YouTube channel all the time about farm teams for the mafia, right? Mm-hmm. These younger yeah. kids that uh, end up turning into men. They may be the sons, the cousins, the nephews of made guys. Um, you know, you talk about the Bath Avenue crew or the Giannini crew or the, you know, the Tanglewood boys or whoever. And, you know, the Purple Gang has really kind of been that. They were kind of the first of sorts to be like a farm team. We obviously had Murder, Inc., which was many years ago. But these Harlem Purple Gang are so interesting because a lot of their members became uh, high-ranking members of the Genovese crime family, the Bonanno family, the Lucchese family. Um, They had some very dangerous individuals. And we're going to kind of play it all out here. But I think when we kind of jump right into the episode, mm-hmm. I guess I'll ask you first, what made you interested in the East Harlem Purple Gang? Because they're really interesting because, like I said, they, they were not made men initially, and they really ruled a, a, a brand of drugs, which a lot of people are confused with. The mob didn't mess with drugs, when the truth is the Lucchese crime family, the Bonanno crime family, were, were arguably the biggest drug dealers this country had at one point. Um, what, what got you into this, this, uh, part of the mob? Yeah. So, you know, the, I'd always heard the name, the purple gang. And again, for your viewers, we're not talking about the old purple gang of the 1920s prohibition era, the Detroit guys, you know, th- this is a group that started in East Harlem were really active in the 1970s. 
So I'd heard the name batted around, certainly when Michael Meldish was killed in 2013. You know, I was like, oh, the Purple Gang, I heard them before. I didn't even know that was really still a thing. But what really kind of piqued my interest when I was doing the research for Garden State Gangland, I was looking into the killing of Johnny Coca-Cola Lardier, a Genovese uh, crime family member who was killed in New Jersey in the late 70s. And there was an article in New York Magazine about how his murder tied to these other, they call them the 22 caliber killings. And they mentioned the Purple Gang in there. And I just, like something about it just piqued my interest. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do a little research on these guys. And that was one of the um, kind of the ideas I had for my next project after Garden State Gangland. And that's, um, you know, generally with my book ideas, I'll run some idea, run it by my agent, get her thoughts on it. And this one just seemed to have the most legs. And, and like you said, a lot of people have talked about this, but there's never really been anything like fully written about the history I, there's people that even doubt the Purple Gang were ever really a thing. So, yeah, I thought it was a really good topic. You know, it's funny. I, I think one of the most fascinating things about the mafia genre is when you you look into these people, how many connections there are to each mm-hmm. other, right? And you're talking about, like, New Jersey, where, you know, you have Johnny Coca-Cola, who I believe was uh, on work release or some sort of uh, yeah. program where he, he, you know, and he disrespected, I believe, someone in the Genovese crime family, and they had him whacked, and you know, I'm sure you'll get into some of the, the, the killings tied to those killings or those murders, the guns. But, you know, I think when you talk about the Purple Gang, you really have to go all the way back to the beginning of, of the mafia, quite honestly, in this country. Because I've talked about this before a lot as, as part of kind of those entrenched areas. And in the early 1900s, a lot of people don't know. They think of New York City and they think of maybe the Bronx or Little Italy or Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But the mafia really originated in this country in East Harlem. Right. With Clutch Amarello, Sierra Terranova, all those guys. And when we look at the inner workings of, of those guys and they would ultimately matriculate into the Genovese crime family. People like Fat Tony Salerno, Tony Ducks, um, even an individual today, uh, Barney Bellamo, who you know is the alleged yeah. boss of the Genovese crime family, came from East Harlem. Um, Vinny Cafaro, all, all these different guys. I, I want to ask you, kind of connecting to that. Do you think that years ago, when, when Clutch Amarello was doing what he did, Black Hand, all this stuff, do you ever think it would have matriculated into what it became in a, in a random way? Do you kind of understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, just real quick, going back to your original point, uh, the other thing, too, that people don't realize is East Harlem was a was the biggest Little Italy in the United States in the early 1900s. Yeah. Definitely way bigger than you know, what is popular, Little Italy. And I think Lower. they had 100,000 plus residents at one point. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and the other thing, too, is if you walk by these places, like where Sierra, no, Sierra, Sierra Terranova uh, grew up, where Clutch Amarello and his guys were operated, where Joe Valachi was, you know, we're, we're not talking a big area. We're talking about, you know, yeah. 10 blocks, give or take, in a direction. So it was really kind of concentrated in. But, you know, but to your point, I, I think having that structural element of, the Sicilian mafia already embedded in what they were looking to do. I think, um, you know, the one thing that I think just kind of stepping outside a minute that gives the mafia its staying power, if you will, is that built in structural element of it, boss, underboss, consigliere or council of elders for some of the other smaller Sicilian families, capos, soldiers. So I think that gave them the, right off the bat the advantage of the other ethnic crime groups at that time. And I think having kind of a base of operations like East Harlem or Little Italy, that was such a strong ethnic community for for a long time, kind of really helped them and gave them an advantage that maybe the Irish or Jewish gangsters didn't didn't have, and certainly not in the numbers. Well, it's interesting, too, because by the 40s and 50s, we kind of have to position where East Harlem is. It's basically between Harlem Mm -hmm. and the Bronx, right? So. It's kind of an interesting geographical area, but by the 40s or 50s, there are very few gangsters still around, right? A lot of people have moved in. A lot of different minorities have moved in. Um, and, and But you still have people like Salerno. They're still around, people like that. Um, and, and this is kind of where the, the drug trade starts, particularly when we hear the names Nicky Barnes, okay, the, the, some of the black drug dealers. Okay, people need to realize that the mafia was supplying those people mm-hmm. with, with the drugs. And as you know, and, and we've talked about kind of in different shows, people like John Ormento, Ernie Boy Abamante, 
Uh, even Billy Bats Benvena, a lot of people don't know that, that from Goodfellas, he was very involved with the drug trade. You look at it in Harlem per se, Carmine Tremonti, um, Johnny yeah. Echoes, you know, all these guys. Tell me kind of about the early guys in Harlem in, on Pleasant Avenue that were moving huge amounts of, of heroin. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned two of the real big ones, Carmine Tremonti, Big John Armento. Um, there were guys like uh, Jinx uh, De Silva who were moving stuff. There were um, you know, guys like Herbie Spelling, who was a Jewish gangster who um, was was a big major drug uh, trafficker out of uh, out of the East Harlem area. Uh, you mentioned Johnny Echoes. Um, there's a great book, and I'm sure you're you're familiar with it, and probably a lot of you, your viewers. It's one of like the they call them the holy grails of mob books because it's very hard to find and very expensive. Called the Pleasant Avenue Connection, and really, really talks about a, a undercover narcotics investigation about this East Harlem heroin trafficking, and I forget the exact number, but something like 75 percent of the heroin being moved through the United States was at some point in its journey going through East Harlem, that's, that's how big a epicenter of the drug traffic was going on there. Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny because I actually, I found a, a court file from like 1957 where you mentioned some of the, you know, East Harlem guys, mm-hmm. you know, they're involved with like Jewish gangsters, Harry Stromberg, people yeah. like that, you know, and then we obviously see Vito Genovese in, in the late fifties, early sixties, he goes away as we know. Um, but but these guys are big movers. I mean, Joe Beck di Palermo, who I know you know, the Lucchese yeah. family and Bonanno family were integral in moving heroin, French Connection, setting all that stuff up. Um, that was the real drug trafficking before the modern day Colombia to Mexico to the United States pipelines or, or some of the other ones. This was the one that the bosses of these families kind of set up and said, this is our big thing. And, and drugs is a huge business i mean you're making tens of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. people like carmine galanti but as you know your book kind of gets into the purple gang is created by some of the younger people in harlem right and and i remember in in carlito's way um carlito briganti mentions at one point that um you know the the boys from pleasant avenue i guess at one point he mentioned they were going to hurt him in some way and that was the real reference in popular culture to Pleasant Avenue and these young kids, I believe. But tell me kind of how they get started, because I think it really happens like normal power vacuum. People get arrested and you just have more people come in and fill the void. Sure. Absolutely. And and I don't want to mention a quick correction. It was Martin Big Jinx de Severo, not de Silva. That was one of the early kingpins. But yeah, exactly what you said. So late sixties, early seventies, New York city, law enforcement. It's kind of interesting, too, because in the background of this whole thing going on, you have a lot of corruption of the NYPD. This is like the Frank Serpico era. And some of this is because of these drug guys in East Harlem. But there's this narcotics group that forms in the NYPD in conjunction with federal agents. And basically, they, they do these massive raids that center around the East Harlem drug trade. And you're talking 40, 50, 60 guys getting arrested. Guys like Carmine Tremonti, Big John Armento, Herbie Spelling, Sperling. Um, and exactly what you said, you have a power vacuum. So, you know, you have this group of guys like in their 40s, 50s and up. They're off the streets. Now there's these kids, guys that were born in like the late 40s, early 50s, you know, early 20s. Some of them are related. Some of them are like the sons and, and grandsons of, of guys that were on the street previously. Now they step up. So by like 1972, 1973, you start seeing the emergence of, of this small group who, who incidentally, I, I was able to find the, the original kind of, they called them the Wolf Pack, um, later kind of becomes the Purple Gang. We can talk about how the Purple Gang name came about, but, but the, exactly what you said, there's a power vacuum. These guys are ready on the street. They see the opportunity and they kind of step into that position. You know, uh, one of the the early members was Johnny Echoes Campobiano, mm-hmm. who I know in your book you talked about. This is actually a very interesting connection to last week's show. We did a show on Tommy Simone, who mm-hmm. was involved with Goodfellas. In the early scene of Goodfellas, that iconic scene where we meet all the different gangsters, right? The Fat Andy, the Michael Frangese. There's an individual they mentioned called Johnny Jimmy two times, I believe Johnny Mm -hmm. two times. That was actually a lot of people believe. Did you find any research that 
there is reason to believe they were that was based on Johnny Echoes because didn't Johnny Echoes get his name for saying things twice? I heard that. I, I never found like a definitive, but I heard the same thing you did that that might have been. You and know, I think we a lot of those, a lot of those guys were around each other, like you said, with the connections, because a, a lot of the guys that were operating on East Harlem were Lucchese guys, or really plugged into the Lucchese family. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because like when you look into some of these films and or TV shows, right? I don't think the like David Chase and The Sopranos. I don't think he ever actually has come out and said, "Hey, these characters are based on these characters." But if you read into like, you know, Vito Spadafore, mm-hmm. that was Johnny Boyd D'Amato. There, there, there's a lot of connections. I made a reference recently to Tough Tony Federici, who passed away. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of parallels between him and Artie Bucco. Yeah, if you look right. into them, like they're yeah. very similar. So. It's interesting. I'd always be curious if they were actually the same person. But so this power vacuum starts at one point. The papers in New York, in fact, I believe the uh, you know the powers that be actually referred to these young members of the Purple Gang as a terrorist group. Right? Mm-hmm. They were just yeah. lethal, and a lot of them started as I would have to think corner boys or lookouts, right? Mm-hmm. Or members of the low level drug trade. If you've ever seen The Wire, they would be the the guys in the corner moving stuff. You know, just low-level guys learning stuff. I saw a picture, and I think you referenced it maybe at one of your 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 um, speaks that you've had. It, and it's just you see these guys. You know, they just look like gangsters on Pleasant Avenue. And you also talk about in your book how you could go to Pleasant Avenue at any time, three in the morning, two in the afternoon. You can get whatever you wanted: mm-hmm. guns, whatever, drugs. It was a one-stop shop. It truly seemed like. Uh, a debt of iniquity, really, doesn't it? Yeah, and and at the same time, I've spoke to people that grew up on Pleasant Avenue, and there, you know, this was this idyllic kind of nostalgic place to grow up. Everyone says it was great growing up there because the wise guys never bothered anyone on the street. But at the same time, you see these surveillance photos, guys double, triple parked, just literally with their trunk open in the middle of the day, putting packages in the back of the trunk. Because it was the way Pleasant Avenue is, we're talking about a road that's, uh, I want to say, maybe six blocks long. It's really kind of bookended on each side, and everyone knows each other. So it was like kind of this safe haven street. And it, it took law enforcement a, a little while to acclimate themselves in there because it wasn't just like somebody totally foreign can go in there and start taking pictures or, you know, they, they would have been made. So they, um, they had to rent an apartment under a fictitious name and kind of do all this. But because the mob guys felt so comfortable there, yeah, the, the photos, there's a couple of them, Pleasant Avenue Connection, they're basically sitting on lawn chairs outside in the middle of the day going about their business. Yeah, and they're just overseeing massively mm-hmm. huge million-dollar drug uh, depots, basically. And, yeah. you know, as we know, you know, heroin has always been big in the United States. This is not just something that's been a 20-year thing. Heroin was huge in the 60s, the 70s. Um, and when we look at kind of this power vacuum, these kids that come in, um, what I've, what I know you found out, what I would ultimately find as well is that a lot of these people knew each other. They all were from the same neighborhood, just like any other farm team. They were the, um, you know, the descendants of of other gangsters. You talk about a kid, Frank Viserto Jr. I mean, his father was a Gambino guy. You know, you have a lot of these guys coming up and. And it's so interesting when you look at crime in the United States and when we look at gangs, whether it's black gangs, Spanish gangs, Italian gangs, it's all the very similar environment, right? Mm -hmm. You grow up, you have very little mentorship. You see the guys on the street making money and you say, I don't want to go flip burgers. I want to go sell dime bags and make more money than I will in a week and a day. And it's so interesting. Tell me a little bit about these people, some of the people involved at this time, because they really are like 20 and 30 years old. They're not old. Yeah, yeah they are. And you like, there's this one story, they all got drunk at a nightclub and they, they're like shooting guns in the air and the cops come and arrest them. And there's this big melee and guys like one of the Meldish brothers, Angelo and Pasquale Prisco, they all get arrested. I think it was Pasquale Prisco bites a cop on the finger. You know, they're young kids. They're just out there kind of cowboy almost. Um, but when they, when they move into this, uh, you know, because they already had those familial connections, because the, a lot of them grew up, again, within a couple blocks of each other, they all kind of know each other. Uh, you got the Priscos who are related to the Meldish family, the Ky- the Cayanos, uh, you know, these family ties. So the, the group is, it, it's kind of amorphous in a way, but it's, it's there's like a core connected uh, core of the group of the Purple Gang. And um, 
you know, by 1975, 1976, they're, they're on a lot of law enforcement radar already. And part of that is because not only were they wild and, and dealing drugs, they're also pretty violent. And uh, initially, a lot of that violence was internal, where they were kind of like jockeying for position and power internally. And there were like street beefs, but not too dissimilar what you mentioned before about kind of like a street gang mentality. Um, so because of that, because of all this going on, all the violence, they, they find themselves on law enforcement radar within a couple of years of formation. And that's what kind of you're going to have, you know, in any street gang, you're going to have inner beefs. You're going to have yeah. people that are maybe a little stronger than others. They're going to say, you know what? He's too weak. We got to get rid of him. Maybe someone talks to uh, the, the, the police. Um, and we would start to find body po- bodies popping up all around Harlem, all around these, you mentioned nightclubs. And, you know, I, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that the shooting in the air type of thing. I don't know how much you know about this, but in some of my research I've done on the Camorra, right, out of mm-hmm. Naples, real mafia. Um, from what I understand, that is a show of power in a neighborhood, right, that you rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go around and shoot guns in the air as a way to kind of say this is our neighborhood. This is where we are. We own this stuff. And I, I don't know if that's kind of akin back to that, but that's such an interesting story. A lot of these kids were cowboys, as you said. They didn't mm-hmm. care about anybody. And when we're talking about the the Meldishes, I mean, Joe Meldish, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Joe Meldish likely killed 50 plus people, probably more than that. I mean, th- these are violent lunatics. And again, they're not just killing rivals. They're killing people that are friends. Yeah. I heard a quote, an enormous capacity for violence. That's what that's kind of being said about them. How much drugs are they moving at this point? Do you have an estimate? Do you know offhand? It, 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 we're not talking like massive quantities, but we're talking like fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars worth of heroin at a time. They they also get into cocaine, which is somewhat unusual for the mob in the seventies. They didn't, they never really, and that's a whole other conversation. How come they never got really heavy into the cocaine trade? But um, it's it's enough to get attention. I, I don't know if it was the same amount that say like during the French Connection or the late sixties they were moving. Um, and also the interesting thing here too, is over the course of the seventies, uh, as this group gets more involved in, in drugs more, they, they kind of do the, uh, I call it the suburban flight. You know, they start moving out of East Harlem to Westchester County, to Rockland County, to the, to the Bronx, um, and, and kind of, you know, dispersing their, their criminal activities to a wider area. So they go from this, you know, what we described earlier. And, and in fact, some of them were parts of like even lower level street gangs. And then, you know, within a couple of years, as they're starting to get power, they, they you know, they make that move and, you know, get the, the two-story house up in uh, Tuckahoe or something. Uh, but yeah, the, the drugs were, were, were a major part of what, what kind of solidified their power base originally. I want to kind of talk about some of the individual members and, and mm-hmm. kind of ultimately, it's funny because they didn't have a long reign, particularly the Purple Gang, no. right? At least that no. we know of, like the core group of Purple Gang, because, you know, it's almost like a a, a business, right? A company. Mm-hmm. You start as kind of a, a regular, let's just say a bank, a bank employee, and then you go to be a manager. And then hopefully you go up into the upper echelon. I think the Purple Gang kind of felt like they were Italian. This is where they're going to start. We're going to move drugs or we're going to kill people, do what they had to do, get some attention from the big boys and, and hopefully get the call up right to be to be the next in line but we start to see them not only killing uh, gangsters but then they start getting involved with killing regular people i.e arthur milgraw who was involved with the new york lottery tell me more about that because we we've seen obviously like i said them killing people that are gangsters but what happened here uh, they start killing people that or not necessarily associated with the mob. And then they start taking on contract killings as well. Yeah. So the, you know, Arthur Milgram had a, um, had a company that um, w- was involved with the ticketing of the New York lottery. And he had, he had gotten some investors in the company among which was Frank Vicerito Jr. Who kind of shows up as I would say one of the real core members of the purple gang. And they have a falling out and Arthur Milgram is shot and killed. And I have a photo in my book that I got from the Daily News of, you know, this body lying in the snow uh, outside his apartment complex. Um, And it basically was probably not a disciplined hit. It was kind of like this guy pissed us off 
type of thing. So there, there's still a little bit of that kind of cowboy mentality there, but it's, it's like they just jump right to the violence, whether it's beating guys up. And, and for a while, uh, uh, Daniel Pagano, who was a, a Genovese guy up in Rockland County, he was trying to muscle into the carting garbage waste hauling racket. You know, he would hire Angela Prisco and, and the Meldishes to come up there and they would literally just beat up other you know, competitors in the garbage business. So, uh, excuse me, that was Joseph Pagano, not Daniel. Um, so yeah, the, the, even though as they're starting to grow and, you know, move into, let's say more sophisticated rackets, they still have that undercurrent of, of violence there. But this kind of behavior eventually is going to become very well known to the police, the FBI, mm-hmm. all these different entities. And you start killing regular people, that's going to on the front page of the paper. Right. Oh yeah, I yeah, don't know absolutely. the exact headline, but I'm sure it said "lottery bigwig" or something killed, or who knows. And and this stuff is very concerning, right? Because you talk about a guy like Viserto; these guys are just going off crazy, cold cocked, they're doing stuff they're not supposed to. We've seen in the past when you're dealing with the mafia, a lot of the time, if you're doing this sort of thing, they're just going to get rid of you. But I think a lot of mobsters looked at them and said, "Well, we kind of have a problem here, but let's see if we can't grab these guys and." and maybe turn them into something that can help us. They're also getting involved, as I said, with contract killings. They're doing, you know, um, they're, they're moving guns that are involved in yep. tens of homicides. How many homicides do you think were connected to these guns that they were moving? Uh, quite, real quick, though, I, I just pulled up the headline. It's lottery, ticks, big, slain, and ambush. So you're there you close. Go. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to put that right there. Oh, it's right in the front page. Yeah, right in the front page. And that's very damaging to the mob or to people associated with it. Yeah. In fact, I found a a little clip from an FBI surveillance report talking about how it was the Gambino and the Lucchese family, I believe. They were basically complaining that they were having trouble with these wild cowboys out of East Harlem. So maybe jump ahead a little bit. But what you see is, like you said, they had a pretty short reign. And um, by the end of it, how they get out of it is the mob starts making some of these guys. They're like, let's bring them into our fault so we can control them somehow. But, but getting back to your question. So um, yeah. So the purple gang start becoming like, you know, fodder for, for the newspapers, but really kind of kicks it into this like 1977 to 78. There's so many articles about them. So Frank Vicerdo and a couple guys start trafficking guns. They buy the guns in Florida and they bring them up to New York. And these guns find their way primarily into the hands of the Genovese family. And really, it was Don uh, John DeGilio out of uh, New Jersey, and some of his guys start getting these guns. And you start seeing the spate of government informants and, and guys associated with the Genovese family that start getting killed in 77. Um, some of them like, uh, like Vincent Gampone and, and Bach Chin, who's a wiretap expert, they start tracing and find out that some of the same guns are being used to kill these guys. And when we talk about like Johnny, Johnny Coca-Cola from the Genovese, they were running these ballistics. They were finding all these guns were from these batches that the purple gang were bringing from Florida up to New York. Then that's where we get into all of a sudden in 77, 78, it's like the, the story du jour, the purple gang, the next mob family of new, you know, New York, the purple gang, terrorist squad you know these like really hyperbole hyperbolic or skip that one um but you know these big headlines that are kind of making a lot out about how the purple gang are going to be this next big thing so yeah they they go from obscurity to notoriety within within just a couple years and and a lot of it has to do with those guns i think what's interesting is i made kind of a a connection in my own head to they reminded me a lot of of and, and like you said, they're arms dealers, basically. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. massive drug dealers. They're doing all these different killings and hurting people. And they're this rising group. And the only difference between them and a group like, if you know, the Rudai organization, which is this Albanian yeah. group yeah. Uh, who tried to muscle into the mob. The only difference is these guys were Italian. Those were Albanian. What mm-hmm. the mob says is, as you talked about, is the bigwigs. You know, the, let's just say like the Neil De La Croaches or people like that. They say, you know what? These guys are the future. Let's bring them involved with us. And that's kind of how, in a weird way, it, this does not end a lot of the time with all these guys are arrested, like the Ruta organization, they go to jail. Most of these guys by the late 70s. So I want to kind of go into each each member, the yeah, ones sure. who kind of matriculated. Yeah. 
at peak, according to I know what you've written and what I've found, the Purple Gang at at peak had about thirty members, mm-hmm. if you will. Now, when I say members, I don't believe they took any sort of oath, but they were the hierarchy of the of this group. They had about seventy five associates, and that's everybody from petty criminals to drug mm-hmm. runners to um, you know messengers or whoever. And I want to kind of get into by 1978, according to LCM Blogspot, which is a great website, they kind of mm-hmm. mark um, induction ceremonies. One of the first people to be made is a guy called Angelo Prisco. Mm-hmm. All right. He had a brother called Pasquale, two brothers, definitely, as you alluded to, hard headed kids, tough kids. Mm-hmm. Angelo Prisco would actually make a, a real strong move he would eventually be made he'd head into the family got very involved with new jersey but he was from new york had a lot of different movements around he actually had a really wild ending actually Uh, in 2004 he was caught on a very interesting wiretap Mm -hmm. i'm sure you've heard it yeah um with this guy called jeff stantini who is his driver and i have an excerpt i was just going to read uh for kind of the the audience here santini had this great way of getting prisco to talk talk prisco talk 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 which you get some of these guys in a car and you know there's a treasure trove of stuff but he talked about everything from you kind of being a mobster to that he's tough and he talked about steven seagal he made a very interesting remark about the gambino crime family he said quote they'll never let me out of here get the fuck i hate these guys i don't do nothing for the gambinos as soon as i hear them my asshole goes like this and i would think he would go like that Mm -hmm. They think they think who the fuck they are. They think they can. They're the number one in the world, you know. Everybody else is shit on their shoe. Santini would respond. Peter just got convicted. Fr- Prisco, who? Peter. Ah, Frisco, fucking jerk off. He just. Uh, and then he just kind of got into like the fact of they ruined the mafia really mm-hmm. by trying to kill Gravano and all this stuff. And he he had some really fascinating conversations. He would ultimately get life in prison, but. He was just one of the the many that were involved with this group. Yeah, and he was uh, inducted into the Genovese family. And um, uh, yeah, he definitely had, and I talk about him in my Garden State Gangland book because he had that, like you said, that connection to New Jersey um, that some of these guys didn't have. You know, what's interesting is I, I think the Gambino family, you probably had the least guys connected with the Purple Gang. It was really... Lucchese, uh, Genovese, and a, and a couple of Bananos. Those were kind Banana, of the, yeah. the core group. One of the recent uh, involvements, and I want to kind of get into this. And before I do that, I just want to mention a couple others. And then we'll talk about Joe and Michael Meldish. Um, Danny the Lion Leo, Mm -hmm. um, who is 94 years old. He's still alive. He was born in 1928. Danny the Lion really got to start moving a lot of drugs in and around Harlem. Would ultimately graduate to being involved with construction. Was regarded as a very high up. In fact, According to multiple wiretaps, and I've heard Sammy Bipal Zapparo, Genovese uh, member, talk about this. Alan Baldi Longo talked about it. Um, they would identify Mr. Leo as a very high-ranking member in the late 90s and was still making people. In 2005, we see Giganti get convicted. He ultimately dies. Belomo mm-hmm. goes to jail. And then you have the Matty the Horses, the Dom Cirillos, the Danny Leo. And at one point... The feds actually identified Leo as the boss of the family. Um, He's an interesting individual. What was his connection? Because he's pretty old at this point as far as he was moving drugs. I think that's how I got to start, right? Yeah. And, you know, he he shows up the first time I see him associated with the Purple Gang is 76. He's part of a DEA intelligence report, which kind of lays out the Purple Gang members. And he gets affiliated with them. And uh, there's a few articles about him in the early 80s where he's um, questioned in a couple mob killings and he's referred to as Purple Gang member Danny Leo. Um, so he he is around those guys. And I think that Genovese connection is one of the reasons that and obviously the drugs. Uh, but, yes, there's a perfect example. Here's a guy that was a member of the Purple Gang, later ends up becoming was it, he was part of that commission, right, with the Genovese kind of yeah. for a little while, the ruling yeah. commission. So, um yeah, yeah, he's a he's an interesting character. There hasn't been really a ton done about him either. He's one of those guys that's kind Let of. Let me ask you about Danny, and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I, I try occasionally I'll do a show on like older members of the mafia. Mm-hmm. There's some guys in their 90s still alive. I mean, yeah. Albert Gallo, uh, Dom Cirillo, Danny Leo, uh, all Genovese people actually. They must outlive people. But 
I guess I'll ask you, um, just, you know, a lot about the mafia. You don't think they're still involved with, with the data. I mean, Danny Leo's, I mean, he can't still be involved. No. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe just hanging out, but there was that one guy I always, whenever anyone asked me that is that one guy, uh, Chicky, uh, Chinky Facciano, yeah, yeah, he was he was extorting guys. He was like ninety five years old extorting. Look at Sunny Frenzy, so. it's true. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? Um, uh, real quick too, and, and I just checked in my notes on here. Uh, Danny Leo was born in East Harlem too, so that was yeah. another you know connection. There. It's but, really uh, a stronghold for the Genovese. Yeah, but uh, that that's good. Quite like Gallo, I can't imagine is doing anything. Or, yeah. Quite dumb. Um, There's still a lot of old guys around. It's just I think you're right. They kind of probably I'm sure they still play cards or mm-hmm. you know, hang around. But you know, and like I said, Sonny Franzese was shaking down strip clubs in his 90s. So <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. It's not out of the question. <laughs> um, I want to ask you um what connection that I made here and and just some of my memory. I did a show on Vinny Basciano, Bonano boss. Yeah. Um, obviously Michael Mancuso was an associate mm-hmm. of the Purple Gang. He's now the alleged boss of the Bonano crime family. Uh, doing some very odd things uh, as the head, allegedly. Um, but with Vinny Basciano, I did some research, and what I know about Vinny is he got his start through a guy called Tony Cole Colangelo, right? Mm-hmm. And I researched Tony Cole, and he was allegedly very involved in East Harlem, in the Bronx. Have you ever heard that name before? He was a big bookmaker. I don't know if he was in drugs, but I found kind of an interesting correlation between Mancuso, Tony Cole, and Vinny Basciano. Did do you ever have you ever heard that name? So I've heard I've heard that in relation to Basciano, and part of the reason is Basciano often gets lumped in as a Purple Gang guy. I didn't see him really in anything, and part of that is because he was born in '59, so at the height of the Purple Gang, he was you know a teenager, late teens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that he wasn't probably tangentially involved. And there were a couple of Bonanno guys like Mancuso that were. That's kind of what I was at, yeah, curious yeah. about. With like so I, I personally, in my research, never found any definitive thing from law enforcement or people. I simply seen that repeated in articles or other people saying it, it could very well be. I didn't have him on the list. I really based my stuff more on kind of like available lists from law enforcement. Plus but, much older too, those guys. Yeah, and he, but his name was one that popped up. And if he was, he was definitely there kind of at the tail end of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to kind of get into the, the main guys that most of us now know as kind of the main conduits of the late Purple Gang. And really, Purple Gang up until their death, uh, Michael and Joe Meldish, very mm-hmm. interesting, not fully Italian. They are the cousins, though, of the Priscos. So yes. they had that, familial connection but they were not full italians they'd never be made they would have been made long ago if they were fully italian they had the the chops um joe meldish as i said i've identified him as one of the most dangerous people ever associated with the mob in my opinion uh no one really gives him any credit but this guy was a lunatic a depraved killer um he's doing 25 to life for a 99 murder i believe now his brother michael Okay, uh, allegedly ran what was left at a purple gang, but was loosely in a, a Lucchese associate, still moving drugs, still mm-hmm. doing all sorts of things. I want to talk about his murder because I'm asked all the time about when was the last mob murder. Okay, we've had mobsters killed, not by the mob though, by yeah. lunatics and other people. But 2013, as you know, last time a, a mobster, if we call Michael that, was killed. Ellsworth Avenue, Throgs Neck, the Bronx. He comes home, 62 years old, gets out of his Lincoln or attempts to get out of his Lincoln. He shot multiple times. Now, according to the case, an individual called Terrence Caldwell was the shooter. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting about Mr. Caldwell is I want to talk a little bit about what happened and why this happened. A year before this, according to the powers that be, Michael Meldish was beaten up by an individual called Ernie Aiello. And I know Aiello because he's from the Bonanno family, kind of one of those knock around, you know, enforcer kind of guys. I guess allegedly Meldish was dating a woman connected to Michael the Nose. Okay. Uh, In response to being beat up, Mr. Caldwell, who is a friend of Michael Meldish, is ordered to kill a Bonanno member, this guy Enzo Stagno. Mm -hmm. Caldwell seen running from the scene. A year later, also, Meldish allegedly took a loan from Matty Madonna, who goes way back, right? Mm-hmm. Late 50s, 
he's selling drugs to Nikki Barnes, connected to the Purple Gang as well. According to the report, Meldish claimed to say he wasn't going to pay it back, fuck off, that sort of thing. <laughs> Madonna allegedly then goes to, again, this is according to the indictment, Stephen Crea, who's a high-ranking member, Crea enlists Caldwell, who because he knows Meldish well, and a guy, Chris Londonio, as well as his son, Stephen Jr. They supposedly take care of this hit. Now, what we find, as far as a connection, supposedly Mr. Caldwell called uh, Matt Madonna or someone involved with this directly after the hit, which I know this case is still in appeals. Mm-hmm. I know Stephen Crea is still trying to appeal. Uh, I don't know if we've seen the end of this, but 62-year-old Michael Meldish was killed. That was the last mob murder. What, what in your research did you find on this? Yeah, there were a few different motives, and, and I think might be the basis of one of the appeals has to do with the motive. Uh, because like you said, the, the the tie between Michael Mancuso and Meldish, that goes back to the 70s. Um, and this whole thing about him getting beat up in front of Rayos on Pleasant Avenue, you know, by the Bonanno family as, as retribution for going out with the girl that Michael Mancuso was with, um, the, the Enzo Stagno murder. But when, you know, when it comes to the Meldish murder, all of a sudden it switches over to the Lacazes. You get, you know, exactly what you said, how you outlined it. And that's ultimately what, what they were all convicted of. Um, and then you have uh, that guy, Frank Pasqua, who also has ties to the Purple Gang through his dad and, and this other mob guy named Dominic Tufaro. You know, he comes out with this whole other thing that he was there that night and his father was supposed to be the one that kills Meldish. So there's still enough complexity and like questions around the whole Meldish murder. I think that I, I, I'm curious how, what's going to be the outcome of some of these appeals, if there's going to be any more like real light put on exactly what happened. Cause I think there's still some unanswered questions and, you know, we're going on almost 10 years now since it happened. Now I always preface this with, I am not a lawyer and or judge or connected to Mm -hmm. law at all, but I do have to admit, uh, in looking at some of the statements by Mr. Pasqua, Mr. Spinelli, Mr. Panisi, a lot of different people, um, I think the family of Mr. Crea believes that a, that a new trial will come at some point. I guess we'll see. Um, the truth of the matter is, and I don't think we need to sugarcoat any of this, all of these people are convicted criminals. They're all yeah. mobsters. They're all yeah. high-ranking members of the mafia. I think if anybody has a case, it might be Mr. Crea, just because... Yeah, that whole conspiracy to commit murder is, is tough sometimes because we saw someone like Frankie Lacasio die in prison because he was allegedly connected to setting up a murder. Now, we don't know if we can prove that, though, but it, it's all really interesting. And I guess we'll have yeah. to kind of wait and see what happens. But the Meldish hit was really the last of the, the Purple Gang, you know, a group yeah. that kind of goes back to the 70s. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's there's still guys around, but they're, you know, that as an entity – and that's kind of the last time you see the name of the Purple Gang, even in the newspapers or anything, you know, tied in with with the Meldish murder. Uh, it's kind of gone the way. Uh, it was funny. Occasionally you would see like articles in the 90s. But if, if you do a search like on like newspapers, like I'm a Purple Gang, it like spikes and then just disappears and then comes back up during the Meldish murder. Uh, so, yeah, it was really kind of the end of, of that that gang. And, uh, and you know, the Meldish is interesting. I just uh, was corresponding with a police uh, policeman from the Bronx. He was active in the 90s, and he told me some great stories about both the Meldishes. I mean, they were still active in all kinds of everything from like, you know, drug dealing to like real street level crime. So uh, I heard um, yeah. I was actually going to bring this up, and I'm glad you kind of led the way. I um I got an email from a guy. He said he lived in the country club section of the Bronx. Mm-hmm. He told me that according to him, now this is just some person that emailed me, but it's pretty interesting. And I've seen some backing it up on the internet that allegedly at one point, Meldish, Joe Meldish was shaking down like teenagers that were selling drugs and stuff. I mean, just, just, I guess, kind of trying to mosey around as, Hey, I'm this old school guy. Don't Mm want to mess with me. And I think a lot of these guys, they can get away with that. Now, nowadays, I don't think they can get away with it because I think the mob is totally down on the pecking order of criminal organizations. But, yeah. you know, I think these guys use a reputation and, and Meldish had that for years. Oh, yeah. Now. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before about how many kill. I mean, I, I like and it's you know, I've 
I think I outlined it in the book, like 10 different articles or something like that with 10 different body counts, <laughs> you know, so it's anywhere from like 20 to a hundred guys. Uh, but you know, that's the kind of thing is that's the reputation. That's what people hear is, Oh, that guy's don't mess with him. He killed a hundred people kind of thing. So. And the thing about Joe Meldish is I think the guy that he ended up killing, it was just over like an insult or something. Yeah, it was yeah, like it was a barroom type of thing. Yeah. Really and cool. that was a, that was a state case. Uh, that he was arrested on for that one. So that wasn't even like a big federal racketeering yeah. indictment. That was like a low level, like you said, argument in a bar that led to a shooting kind of thing. This is such an interesting group because, you know, I, I um, I, like I said, I talk so much about the, the farm team guys and these mm -hmm. guys truly were farm teams because yeah. what I found about, let's say the Beth Avenue crew or the Giannini group or any of these, all of them for the most part either cooperated or went to jail. Very few actually became mobsters. Gene mm -hmm. crew had very few, two or three maybe. I think the Bath Avenue crew had one or two. One, Fabrizio DiFranzisi. A lot of them never really matriculated into much. They either, yeah. again, went to prison or went to, to, to the cooperation route. All these guys, whether it's Mancuso, Danny Leo, Prisco, um, you know, even Michael Meldish, while he wasn't made, they were all very respected, high-ranking mobsters. Um, yeah, and, and look, look at another good one to look at is Matthew Madonna. So Matthew Madonna is aligned with the Purple Gang till the yeah. mid '70s. He gets arrested, goes goes away to prison for twenty some years, gets out in the '90s, and you know gets made into Lucchese family. You know, even though he went to prison, he comes out on the other side. He ends up being the you know acting boss of, of the Lucchese family at some point. Yeah, and when we kind of look at like a post game report of all these people and how they ended up doing, you have a, a boss of the Genovese. You have a capo in the Genovese. Mm -hmm. You have an alleged boss of the Bananos. You have an alleged boss of the Lucchese's. Three of the individuals in the Purple Gang ended up pecking order-wise going all the way to the top. Yeah. I mean, these were just like soldiers. These were yeah. high-end guys. Yeah, Certainly so further is, than the Tanglewood boys. <laughs> yeah, right. This is a, a, a thing yeah. that we need to talk about. And I think you did it so eloquently in this book. And I, I urge you. people, you know, I still get a lot of questions all the time about books and stuff. This is a great book. You know, finding these books that, you know, we've all heard about John Gotti. We've all heard about Al Capone. Mm -hmm. You know, what about, though, the, the Vinnie Bastianos, the Purple Gang? Um, you've written some great books. And I guess I'll just kind of end this with I'm always curious with you, you know, and, and with any author or anybody that's involved with this space. What ultimately got you into this world? Because as far as I know, Deech is not Italian, right? That's not no. a you're not a mobster or a, a descendant of a mobster. What got you involved with this sort of thing? So my stock answer, when anyone asks, how did I get interested in the mafias? I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, so, but you know, uh, my paternal grandfather, actually Jay Ditchie was a small time bookmaker in Perth Amboy. And uh, he was arrested in, in 71 for bookmaking, spent a little time at Trenton state prison. And you were but, curious what bookmaking was, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. But really, uh, my mom loved old mafia movies. And, you know, growing up where I did in New Jersey, North Jersey, you always got the news. So my age, you know, I'm 51. So my formative years in the 80s, you know, John Gotti was in the news all the time. So I, I was always aware of it. But really, after Goodfellas came out, I saw it in the movies. I read the book Wise Guy by Nick Pelleggi. And now I'm like, oh, what's the next book I want to read? And that's kind of started the ball rolling. And then uh, about 95, I met a, a historian, David Critchley. He's, he's written a, a, a great book on the history of early organized crime. And I had relocated to the Tampa Bay area. And he said, hey, I have copied the Kefauver hearings that happened in Tampa. So I was like, oh, I'd love to see a copy of those. And that like reading all this wide open gambling and stuff about Traficante in Tampa, that kind of really piqued my interest. And that that started the borderline obsession second career. And then uh, uh, in the early 2000s, I decided to start writing Cigar City Mafia, and that came out in 04. And since then, it's been, you know, it's kind of the floodgates open since then. Very cool. I got two questions before we go, sure. uh, yeah. just about the mafia in general. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've heard Sel and Rab discuss, and, and he he's written about the fact that he was kind of a, a, a you know, one of the first authors right of kind of the the, the main so he's written the big book five families yeah he would actually go and, and try to talk to these people right whether it's mm -hmm. john Gotti or whoever have you ever have you ever gotten in, in any kind of talks have you attempted to speak to any of these people um what's kind of your experience with with some of these folks well it, it's 
you know, it's obviously it's changed dramatically now. No, there's probably more mob guys on YouTube than there are on the street. <laughs> uh, but yeah, early on, I did. I, I tried, you know, this like 20 some year old kid, green as the grass and no idea what to do, you know, calling up like old bookmakers in Tampa, you know, they wouldn't give me the time of day. But over the years, as I've written more, I've had more people reach out to me. Um, like I've met guys I've written about, especially in the, the Tampa uh, area, but Jersey guys and um, you know, sometimes they'll give you a lot. Sometimes they'll give you a little, uh, but everyone kind of, um, everyone I've spoken to for the most part has generally been on the up and up. And if they don't want to talk to you, they'll give you a, you know, gruff, like F off and, you know, you just <laughs> chalk it up. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how things have changed in the 20 years that I've been doing this, uh, in terms of access to internal stories, just for the number of mob guys that have, not only turn, but are very out and open about a lot of that. When so. you started this, did you ever think you would see Sammy Gravano on YouTube talking about <laughs> his crimes? You ever think you'd see that? Uh, it, it, not only him, just some of the other ones, like, you know, guys like Bobby Luisi, who, you mm -hmm. know, to the general public aren't really as well known. And that, those are the ones that interest me are the guys that know, like you said before, the world doesn't need another Capone or Gotti book. You know, yeah. there's so many good, like, you know, when I think about my next books, what are the stories that nobody's told? What, what are the, where are the key areas in, in mob history that need to be explored further? That's why, that's why, like, I'm, I, I love YouTube, um, but I'm happy I have this podcast because I'm able to delve a little bit deeper into some of the lesser known people. Yeah. You know, I, I just noticed on YouTube, it, it's people want Gotti. They want, yeah, uh, it's the same Castellano. stuff. It's, exactly. I, I, I'm tired of talking about it, but last question, um, sure. 10 years from now, let's say 2032. Um, we all know the word bookmaking. I mean, it's, it's a legal business. Now you can go to yeah. a casino and make a bet. Um, you know, it's hard to shake down a union. Now you're not doing extortion. You can't go into Starbucks and extort them. Uh, you can't go into McDonald's and extort mm -hmm. them. I talked about the pecking order because it's funny because the purple gang really led the way for the, the gangs we see today, you know, the Trinitarios or the whoever, mm -hmm. You know, these these active gangs. Um, what, where, where do you think, and obviously the pecking order of the mob, as you said, there's more people on the internet than on the street. A lot of these guys are dying. You look at charts. I mean, all you see is old people. Yeah. Um, what's the future in 10 years? Do you think the mob will ever go away completely? You know, that's a good story. I, I always liken back to, a, to an article that Selwyn Robb actually wrote for the New York Times in 1988. And the, the title is, um, you know, the, somewhere along the lines that the mob is almost erased from American society, you know, the dwindling mob. And that was 88. And here we are in 2022, still talking about the mafia. So will it go away? I, I don't know in like New York, the Northeast, if, if it will, you'll still have a little bit, but you know, in, in 10 years, I can't imagine that the families will be anywhere near what they are. If there still be functioning families, of course, if you asked me in 2012, I might've said the same thing about 2022. So I, I think the mafia has shown itself, even though it's incredibly diminished, much smaller, and basically all their vices are being legalized and taken away, that there's still going to be some guys out there looking to eke out an existence without getting a regular job. So. And back in the day, you could kill people, right? You could show oh, someone yeah. that, hey, this is what, you know, for instance, the cartels, they have such an ability to advance because they can put propaganda out and say, if you hurt us, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah, I'll show yeah. you. The mob can't do that anymore, right? I heard a, a creator talk about that, uh, R.G. Roger. He talked about John A. Light. When John A. Light can walk to Little Italy and nothing happens, that's when kind of you realize maybe this is not the same force that it once was. But it's a very interesting group. Nonetheless, yeah. I'm interested in continue reading. Do you know what your next project is going to be? Have you thought about it yet? Yeah, I have a couple ideas. And what I usually do is jot them down. And I'll tell you one that, that I'm really leaning towards and I'd really like to do is kind of a, a biography type of Jerry Katina, who I think is probably one of the most powerful, underrated and virtually unknown mob guys in, in history. Uh, for the for those viewers that don't know, he was an incredibly powerful Genovese figure based out of New Jersey, um, who one of the very few mobsters who kind of retired and died in his bed in an old age in Florida in retirement. So don't happen much. As no, you know. no. Um, th those are the true success stories, I think, are the, of the mob per se. But oh, yeah. Fascinating group. Uh, like I said, I'm going to put the book in the description. I'm going to put your website in the description. I urge everyone to go check it out. I, this is a great book. Um, it's a 
very interesting group of people. You know, you can't talk about these farm teams without talking about the Purple Gang. They're really yeah. kind of the leaders. And they, again, went into the stardom of these different families. Uh, Scott Deach, good to see you. Uh, good yeah. to talk to you finally. This was great. Uh, Thanks again for having me on. I appreciate yeah, let it. Let us, uh, real quick before we go, let us know where we can find you, your website, uh, kind of everything you're working on. Yes. Uh, scottditchie.com is my website for my books and various articles. I also run, if you're in the Tampa area, I run the Tampa Mafia Tour, which is at tampamafia.com. You can find that information of that. It's a walking tour of historic Ebor, where a lot of the old Tampa Wise guys got their start. And, uh, and I'm a member of the Advisor Council of the Mob Museum in Vegas. So for any mob fans, if you haven't been to the Mob Museum when you go to Vegas, I would strongly encourage it. I mean, there's it's just a ton of stuff to see that I, th I think anyone who likes your podcast would love. Well, let me ask you real quick. I have to, yeah. do we do your, do we do this traffic episode justice? I don't think we could do it perfectly, but no, I thought it was great. I, I watched it. I think you got almost everything. Yeah. That, that I would have, you know, brought up. Um, and you're on board where... that he was involved with JFK, right? Uh, well, I, I've taken a little bit of the easy way out. And I, I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and there's a lot of connections between him, like you guys identified. Um, I, I will say that the one thing that interests me more than whether he directly killed or had a thing or a lot of the ancillary relationships, like the fact that Jack Ruby visits him in prison in Cuba in 59. I mean, that, come on. What's come that on. all about? Yeah. That's what I always say. Like, doesn't anyone <laughs> find it crazy that out of the hundreds of millions of people in the country, all these people somehow knew each other. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's a really good, really good. Point you know, it's it's too perfect, and it's you know something we'll probably never know. Scott Ditchie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. I mean, you got some stories out there. Uh, good to see you. Thank you. Good seeing you. Appreciate it. Uh, Scott Ditchie uh, joining us here, and we appreciate it. He, I got to tell you guys, he is one of the best authors. Uh, in this space. Uh, and like I said, if you're watching us on YouTube, I went ahead and put uh, the links of his books and his website in the description. For you mob aficionados, the people that really love this stuff, go check out Garden State Gangland, Cigar City Mafia, the Hitman book on the Purple Gang, just some really, really great stuff. Uh, and if you're watching on or checking it out on iTunes, I'll make sure to include it as well. Just really good stuff. Um, and that's what this show is best for, you know, letting you guys know about some of the more forgotten members in the streets. We're not talking necessarily, we talk about the Gaudis and the Gigantes, but what about the Purple Gang? You know, what about Joe Watts? What about Jerry Katina? You know, those are the guys that, um, you know, truly shaped the mafia for what it is. You hear all the time, mafia wasn't in drugs. We've been able on this show to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that is not true whatsoever. We've done shows on Galanti. We've done shows on Joe Beck. We'll do shows on John or Mento. The mob was very involved with drugs. And the Purple Gang was right there to fill the power vacuum when the big boys like Carmine Tremonti and some of those guys went away. They came in, they came, they saw, they conquered and became high-ranking members, some of which are still very involved with the mafia. Michael the Nose Mancuso is the alleged current boss of the Bonanno crime family. Danny Leo is still alive. Angelo Prisco just died. Matty Madonna, still alive, locked up for life, barring some sort of retrial. So just people that are interesting. I'm glad we were able to speak to Scott, and I hope we see him again. As always, I want to just end this with a happy Thanksgiving to all of you, uh, all of you great people, all you great listeners, male and female. We have so many great people out there. Uh, we thank all the new people that are here. I know the relationship with Barstool has kind of grown us just a bit, so uh, we appreciate all of you being here each uh, week and we got another great episode planned next week. And I got to do something a little different next week. And guys, I urge you be open about it. Um, one of the things I wanted to do when I rebranded this show is occasionally get into some other sorts of crime, uh, not just mobsters. We got into a little cartel stuff. Uh, we've done some different types of episodes next week. I have a pretty cool episode planned. I'm going to collab with, uh, two guys at Barstool, uh, which I've done. I obviously had Chief on the show. I had Large on the show. Um, but I'm going to collaborate with another duo uh, that I really like. And I think we're going to have a really interesting episode. I will admit it's a bit depraved, um, but it's something you've probably heard about. And we want to delve more into, to me, what I find so interesting about criminals today, um, the addition of social media uh, and why people 
become the psychopathic depraved killers that they are a lot of it has to do with being known being popular wanting to be that hawk that everybody sees in the end and they're famous for a minute we're going to talk about that next week on the show through a very interesting yet completely evil depraved person so stay tuned for that next week kind of an interesting show then we'll get back to the mafia stuff so as always thank you for listening to the sit down i hope you all have a very happy and healthy thanksgiving we'll see you next week here on the sit down